0: Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing.
1: Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Tracy Campbell is the distinguished E. Vernon Smith and Eloise C. Smith Professor of American History at the University of Kentucky. He is the author of five books, The Gateway Arch, a biography, Deliver the Vote, A History of American Election Fraud and American Political Tradition, 1742-2004, Short of the Glory, The Fall and Redemption of Edward F. Pritchard, Jr., the Politics of Despair, Power and Resistance in the Tobacco Wars. And his most recent book, The Year of Peril, America in 1942, was published by Yale University Press in 2020. For this work, he was named the winner of the New York Historical Society's Zalesnik Book Prize, as well as other honors. Tracy Campbell, welcome to our Kentucky Humanities podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, Bill. Always good to be with you.
1: For the beginning of our conversation, I want to turn to the end of your book and read a short sentence or two from the epilogue. And you write, The pervasive national anxiety of early 1942 would gradually be replaced by nostalgic and comforting memories of Americans confidently coming together bound by their, quote, righteous might to build a vast arsenal that triumphed over enemies on two fronts. And then this sentence, that reassuring saga hides a more complicated story. Tell us about that complicated story.
0: Well, I think I need to tell you about the origins of it, how I came about doing it, because I was in the middle of the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, feeling that anxiety, that fear of opening up the newspaper, you know, our computer every morning, wondering how bad it has gotten and realizing that, you know, as a historian, what that could possibly mean for a worldwide economy. And to try and deal with that, I thought, what could I bring to the table and be thinking about? And so what does a society go through when its very survival is on the line? And in the United States, you had just a few moments like that. You have the American Revolution, you have the Civil War, obviously. But I was thinking, and as you know, I wrote this book about Ed Pritchard, someone who had worked in Washington during the war years. I was familiar with the war years, particularly the weeks and the months right after Pearl Harbor. And so I just started looking at a number of national periodicals and newspapers to try and get a sense of what it feels like to be inside of that. I imagine one day Bill will write about COVID and say, you know, we came up with a vaccine and we all took it and we were all together. And for those of us who might still be around, we'll say, no, that's not quite the story. It's a lot more complicated. And so what I want to do is kind of penetrate that world. And I didn't know where it would take me. I just wanted to try and understand what it felt like really in the first few months after Pearl Harbor so that when I would read about one military official after another talking about, we could lose this war. That's not something, you know, we know that how World War II ended. So it's kind of reassuring. Those are obviously our glory years, but when you put yourself back in it, particularly right after Pearl Harbor, it's a very different feeling. And it started feeling a lot more like 2008, 2009 at the time And of course, the book came out well before COVID, but that's how I was thinking of what does a society look like within the middle of it. And it's always a lot more complicated and it's always a lot more somewhat difficult to handle for a lot of people.
1: Tracy, had other people that you're aware of, historians, researchers, uh, biographers, had they taken, uh, to your knowledge, a similar approach? Uh, that you've taken, that we are almost looking at a a year and a, a war that was maybe painted a bit differently in some of our history books than than what you discovered.
0: There were some books about years, and but no one had ever done forty-two. That Winston Groom had written a, a, a work of fiction about it, but. I wanted to end it where we're still not sure what's going to happen. And it's it's not like the, the story is over and we're, we're, we're ready to go. I wanted to, and I wasn't sure it was gonna be about a year. And I thought I would write it like most historians do. There's gonna be a chapter about politics. There's gonna be a chapter about economics. There's gonna be a chapter maybe about the election, uh, about the war. And it was kind of, it just kind of tasted like yesterday's meatloaf. It was just not there, and it wasn't the, what I was feeling and reading. Say, I read the New York Times every page throughout the entire year, and when you read those first few months, man, there is tension, national anxiety, personal anxiety that wasn't coming through as I treated it, you know, as a thematic concept. So I started thinking about the way I'd really like to do this is just try and take the reader through it as the year develops, which uh, I was not warmly greeted when I gave that to various people. And I just said, just stick with me and see how it goes for the first few months. And whether it was my editor or some people I had read it, they'd say, okay, I got through April, send me May. <laughs> what happens to me? And so I, I, I tried to get out of the way and let the sources try and tell the story uh, rather than me from you know, Mount Olympus as a historian.
1: It is a unique uh, writing, I guess, difference in the, in the way that it's not only chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. It's January, February, March, April. I mean, you, you take us through month by month, and this is what you, you stumbled on. You thought it was unique, and, but you weren't sure how others were going to, to greet this
0: approach. Exactly. Uh, I have a great editor at Yale, Bill fruit who, uh, by the way, who also encouraged me to do another thing historians are never supposed to do, and that's writing first person at time to time. And so there's a few points, like with my father uh, from Boyle County, where I just thought, I think this needs to be in there. And it was one of those moments bill where i just kind of thought how do i really want to write this assuming nobody in the world is going to be interested in reading about a society in crisis fighting for its survival stores saying don't buy too much government saying we're gonna have to ration things i thought this is going to fall like a lead balloon so why not write it the way i want to because it was what was generating such uh what's the right word I i was kind of obsessed quite frankly. You have to be. I read every day of the New York Times, various other newspapers, Life, Newsweek time, just to try and see what it felt like to be on the inside of this. And so that's why I thought, even if no one reads it, this is how I came to see it and try to appreciate it. And I hope it worked.
1: Well, I think it certainly did work. It's a um an approach that uh, not many have taken before that I'm aware of, and uh, you break it down in such a way that uh, you, you think after writing uh, for 12 months, uh, you, you have a complete picture. Did um, I'm not questioning, uh, and who would, the New York Times uh, reporting and their, their, the factual work that they did, Did they see it, though, in the early days as, and I use this word, whether or not you think it's uh, the the wrong adjective or not, but uh, did they see it as dark as you come away uh, from your book um, um, seeing it?
0: Okay, well, first of all, why did I choose the New York Times? Because it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. They have a New York Times historical edition where you can go into any newspaper going back to the 1850s and get the PDF version for January 5th, you know, 1887, and read it as you would have then. And so it was so easy for me to say, well, I got an hour. Why don't I get back to where I was in March, open up my computer, yeah. and go through it? Other newspapers I had to get, you know, through Real Real or something like that. But yes. The New York Times, Life, Fortune magazine, all felt you would use words like grim, uh, very dark. Uh, if we didn't lose this war, Bill, maybe the possibility be like we'd lost, like what had happened in World War One, we would settle it, in with some kind of peace treaty with Hitler, which was equally terrifying. So. As you know, there was one time magazine in February that said this was the worst week of the century, maybe the worst week in the history of the country. Well, I couldn't wait to open up that to see what had happened to make this the worst week ever. And there wasn't a whole lot. It was just the buildup, the tension. There was a, a large uh, passenger liner that had gone on its side, the Normandy, in New York Harbor. And just seeing that, I think that was the final straw for so many people. We can't even build a ship. And it's sitting there in its side. It was probably sabotage. Things have just gotten so bad. And so, yeah, there was a sense, and particularly reading letters to the editor. I start the book off with a 16-year-old saying that, uh, you know, what did a teenager feel like in reading about Pearl Harbor? And so, that was the way to try and put a human face on this.
1: How much uh, were you able to uh, rediscover or get into the, uh, the, the Oval Office, the cabinet, the, uh, the discussions that FDR was having with, uh, with his close confidants? And uh, what new did you discover that uh, surprised you uh, about his presidency?
0: Well, I do, you know, obviously as a, as a historian of the 1940s, I had read, I've been to the Roosevelt Library on many occasions. I had to do that with, you know, the Ed Pritchard story. Uh, I, if there was anything that was surprising was the sense of frustration, if not outright anger coming from FDR about the slow pace of our reaction to Congress, and to his frustration with the American people, I think, throughout 1942. I mean, the the invasion of North Africa happens in early November of 42. So that's about 11 months after Pearl Harbor, Mm -hmm. in which there's a lot of waiting, a great deal of frustration. And I, I remember this one letter that Roosevelt wrote in which he said, can we please make this before November? In other words, can we have something happen before the election? the off-year congressional election. And so that sense of frustration, whether it's here on the local level or in Washington, kind of pervaded a lot of the year.
1: It seems like to me that it didn't take you long to, uh, uh, again, and I say either rediscover or read it anew, Uh, the race problem that we were faced with in 1942 seems eerily uh, strange and yet real uh, of what we've been going through for for decades, and and most likely decades before 1942 in the past. Um, Tell me about uh, how you really make that, in a couple of other areas too that you can elaborate on, but how you made uh, the the course of race relations uh, in in the country at that time um, how you made that a an integral part of your book
0: because it was you know and, and if, whether it's the the riots that I would read about on American military bases the lynchings uh, it was happening month after month uh I think, you know, we have this notion that Congress doesn't work today. It certainly must have been a lot better back then. Well, in the same month that we have our first offensive against Hitler, when we have American troops landing on the ground, waging war in North Africa, November 42, the Senate bogs down in a filibuster over the notion of ending the poll tax, which, of course, was a tax you would pay when you went to vote. And the Southern block of senators wanted to make sure that stayed in place because they made it clear this was about Anglo-Saxon superiority. This was about controlling the Black vote. This was about keeping their power because they could get elected over and over again and have all these chairmanships. And so reading this filibuster, and again, part of the frustration coming from the White House, here we have the Senate bogging down in one of the most crucial months of the war over the whole idea of of voting rights, you know, and so it's this notion that we came together falls apart when you look at it in terms of, of racial components, in terms of how people you know, we had something called the V for Victory program, which was led by a number of black leaders who said, well, if we're gonna have victory abroad, we ought to have it at home where democracy sure doesn't exist. And so one of the things I could do was go up to say the Schomburg Center in New York and Harlem and look through a number of black newspapers and their notion of what was happening in 1942 is a lot different than say what's happening in the New York Times or the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And it dealt with a lot of things like police brutality. It dealt with uh, what was happening to black troops who were in segregated units in American military bases. We segregated our blood supply. And so if, if you're not ready for the openly racist things you're gonna hear from a lot of American political figures, even those who are, who are seen as heroic like FDR You're not ready for what's gonna hit you when you go to 1942. And what's coming from some of the Southern demagogues like Theodore Bilbo and others, uh, is just, it's it's really troubling.
1: How are you able to uh, discern what you read and researched in the New York Times versus what you found in some of the African-American publications and newspapers at that time? Well, how difficult was it to, uh, uh, to source that and to fact check those stories?
0: Uh, well, that's what a historian has to do on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. You don't rely on one source unless that's the only source you've got. And at least with the mid-1940s, I have an abundance of good sources. I have letters written from political officials in which it's typed, which is just wonderful, it's easy to read. A lot of it's accessible online or in going to places like DC or New York. Uh, But, you know, your your viewpoint is different based on where you are. For some people, the war was kind of an afterthought. They were still living their lives. They didn't have anyone, say, serving in the military. They were still shopping, they're still doing their business. Then I could go up say to the New York Historical Society and read letters from soldiers back to their spouses, going back and forth that were extremely different. Um, and so that's the nature of trying to write history is to try and make sense of this cacophony of sources. And that's, that's our job. And what I might've seen would be very different from someone else, what they might see, but that's the nature of, of this beast.
1: We'll be back with Tracy Campbell right after this word from Spalding University.
0: The Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing offers students intellectual rigor, emotional support, affordability, flexibility, and community at the world's first certified compassionate university. From certificate to terminal degree, the programs at Spalding School of Writing foster lifelong writing habits, and help you forge a lasting writing community. Learn more at spaulding.edu slash school of or email school of writing at spalding.edu. Tracy, in uh, the year of
1: peril, 1942, you, I think, use a interesting uh, technique that uh, helps us understand the story, gives us an idea of the personalities you profile several all the way through uh, the book. And I want you to tell us uh, about a few of those. I really do think it makes uh, the story more interesting. Uh, I think it helps uh, uh, move the narrative along. Uh, one of those is an individual named Florence Nimick Schnoon, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I,
0: I, I think it's Schnorr, but uh, it's... Uh, okay. I think it's well, yeah,
1: tell us who she is.
0: Okay, I'm reading, like I said, I, when I say I read every day of the New York Times, I'm reading it like I would another newspaper. doesn't mean I'm reading every word of every article, but what strikes me? And there was a story, it was a rather small one, deep inside the paper of a woman who was an heir to Andrew Carnegie, daughter of a millionaire from Pittsburgh, who had all the resources in the world, who mysteriously dies afternoon. And what happened? She went shopping, she comes back, she's dead. And so as a reader, I'm just kind of wondering, wonder what happened? So the next day I'm reading about the investigation. And so I followed her story through in February to see that what had happened was that she had just recently gotten married to the Sergeant of Arms of the New York State Assembly, uh, told him she was going shopping and instead was going to New York to get an abortion. It was done in a manner that the uh, medical examiner said was, I think he said, was medieval. And obviously there was uh, internal bleeding and she was dead by the early afternoon. And so for the next few days, the authorities are trying to understand who did this and, and they're piecing together this kind of detective work. No one was ever brought trial, but, uh, and she was buried quickly. And there's the end of Florence Schnorr. But I thought her story just compelled me so much as someone who had every resource in the world at her disposal and was dead, you know, in her early 20s. And as I wrote that chapter in February, it just, I, I instead of talking about the war, instead of talking about Overwhelming political issues. I wanted to start off with this compelling story of a young woman who, like I said, had every material advantage, every financial advantage, but uh, had died from a botched abortion because she was still living her life, was still dealing with issues in which you know, not only was abortion illegal, so was contraception. And as I read some of the court cases, it's about, well, yeah, contraception ought to be illegal. And basically the only outlet was don't have sex. So I I thought this was kind of a compelling issue rather than talk about Rosie the Riveter, which is of course an important part, but what about Florence Schnorr and her story? And so I thought that might be an interesting way to bring in what would be, Time Magazine would call the worst month of, of the year to talk about what it was like, even for women who had every advantage in the world.
1: And I think it also underlines your premise uh, that 1942 was a year which uh, some historians have always painted as uh, uh, nirvana, um, that uh, it was all peace and love, and yet uh, uh, the issue of abortion as uh, horrific uh, as it is today as it was back then. And, and that's a, a good example. And that's one of those
0: figures that you just, as you
1: said, stumbled on.
0: Oh, I, stumb- I spent the whole time stumbling. <laughs> In that same month, something called Planned Parenthood happened to be created. It had nothing to do with Florence Snore, but all of these things, if you just take your shovel and dig a little bit under the surface, all these things sprout up that human beings deal with, whether then or now. And so that's why it's, it, it, it became an obsession with me to try and really understand the interior of this year.
1: Tell me about um, another individual named Leon Henderson.
0: Leon Henderson was maybe one of the most powerful individuals in American history who was never elected to something, but he was head of something called the Office of Price Administration. So if you wanted to buy a sandwich, a pair of shoes, a car, rent uh, 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 an apartment, it would be the prices for that would be coming from his office. He kind of controlled the American economy. And one of the things that Roosevelt was utterly absorbed with was making sure that runaway inflation didn't occur. If inflation runs away like it did in previous wars, then the massive amount that we're spending already would become almost worthless. And so that was something that Henderson had to control. So there are various parts of 1942 where Leon Henderson is one of the most important people in everyone's life. By the end of the year, he's out of a job and he almost disappears from history. And so here's this person playing such a crucial role in World War II. There's not a biography of him. There's really not even a scholarly article. There's a little Wikipedia piece. And so If there was one person I wanted to try and bring to the fore, it was this person who had such control over what was really a a command economy in 1942.
1: And most likely to most of us uh, amateurs um, and occasional readers, uh, but interested in that period, uh, someone unknown to us, uh, unless we have delved into it as closely as you have
0: or someone who would be mentioned in a lengthy list of attendees in a meeting or something. Mm-hmm. But when you get inside the Henderson papers and you see the people writing about the price of this or the rations. And one of the great things is I could go online and listen to radio shows mm. and Henderson would do these call in shows. And when he would answer people and it's like talking to you now, the quality was so clear. And people would ask these tough questions. And Henderson did not back away for an instant about, well, look, you, you just got to get tough. You got to quit complaining. I mean, of course, you, you you can't get a raise this year. None of us can, you know. And so he was kind of this gruff figure. But at the end of the year, he said he kept inflation under control. And that's more important than being loved. <laughs> and then he well, disappears. I mean, and so that's the kind of thing about history, whether it's Florence Schnorr or Leon Henderson, they pop up. Yeah. They can have such relevance to everyone's life, a real power, and then a few years later, you don't remember them, and they disappear.
1: I think uh, that maybe some of our listeners of this podcast would be interested in in hearing some of those recordings.
0: Where are those available? I you caught me on that one. All I did was get on Google and look up <laughs> Leon Henderson. I looked up some of these radio shows uh if, if if any listeners are interested i can look them up because i had some in the background but
1: yeah if that's that's if, fine we'll we'll link uh or send those if we get a question about it it's just like the uh, googling my work bill i would
0: open up the computer and think well i got a half hour what if i find out anything about leon and you just start looking around and here's a radio show yeah. Hit click and there he is
1: yeah well it's just like googling tracy campbell and uh c-span comes up where you've been on uh Seven times or something like that? I don't know, five times? So that's, don't that's Google,
0: interesting. Don't, don't have people Googling <laughs> me, Bill. I hope we should start with um, the basics on this.
1: Another uh, individual, uh, Norma Green. Tell me uh, about Norma Green.
0: Norma Green was uh, a nurse with the United States Army. She was Black. She lived in Alabama. And this was, you know, we're talking about looking, trying to double and triple check the New York Times. Well, this was certainly not in the New York Times, but it was in some of the black newspapers and certainly in the NAACP papers. She volunteered to go and help any troops that would be sent to, to Europe in 1943. But before that, she wanted to go shopping in Montgomery, Alabama, and she got on a bus and sat in the wrong seat was told to get off when she didn't, even with wearing the uniform of the US Army, she was taken off and beaten. And this was the same bus system that Rosa Parks would get on 13 years later. So here's Norma Green doing it 13 years before that. And there's hardly any newspaper coverage. Um, I, I used Ancestry, Ancestry.com was something I used a lot for this book. Uh, you know, if, you, if you've got a good account, you can look people up, Norma Green disappeared. And she's got to, you know, it's hard to get Norma Green. It, there's just too many pop up. So I couldn't find what happened to her, even in military mm-hmm. records. But I knew what happened to her on that bus, wearing the uniform. And there were a lot of letters being sent to Senator Bankhead, the Alabama senator who was up for reelection, and he didn't reply. And he didn't have to, because it goes back to the control of the voting machines. And i mean the whole machine Mm -hmm. machinery of, of Southern politics of the segregationist to worry about them. Yeah. And so, yeah, to me, that was an essential story that with all of those people, except with Henderson, who is sitting with Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. I tried not to handle more than a page or two, Mm -hmm. but I thought, There has to be a few human faces, but I just I I want it to be people you hadn't heard of or didn't know about, but you should. Yeah. And so I think if we're going to talk about Rosa Parks, I hope at some point we'll also talk about Norma Green.
1: Yeah, exactly. People
0: like Florence Snort, who uh, her struggles ought to be there, and Leon Henderson. Of all the people in nineteen forty-two, Henderson, you know, he got a lot of votes for Times Man of the Year. But then, it's gone. And by the way, the Times Man of the Year of 1942
1: with Joseph Stalin. By the way. Really? Yes. Wow. The Time Magazine was doing the same thing that sometimes they do in modern times. Yes. But but it is um, it is the most important person now. Thank goodness uh, we've at least made that much progress. Um, Tracy, what what was behind FDR's refusal to desegregate the armed forces?
0: You know, FDR is such a complicated figure. And just when you think you've kind of figured him out, he gets, he slips away. And with FDR, there's always been uh, the, the, on one hand, here's someone who can galvanize millions of people, who can, who can bring us together in ways maybe few politicians ever had, who, who had such ability personally one-on-one but then had these enormous blind spots. And if you go up to the Roosevelt Library, one of them is the Jewish question and what inaction he took, even after knowing about the extent of the Holocaust, which he was starting to understand in 1942. The race question is another one. And there was, you asked about, could we get inside the interior? Well, I could listen to a few white house tapes roosevelt was the first president to tape conversations Hmm. and you can your listeners can get on youtube and listen to some he had with a philip randolph yeah who comes to the white house to ask for mr president would mean a great deal if you as commander in chief as a three-time elected president would would desegregate the armed forces and you hear roosevelt gosh it's kind of hard to talk about say well you know once you have one battalion here over here once they start fighting they integrate anyway and what i've done is i've put some black musicians on naval ships because they just know how to play music and you wonder he's actually saying this in the oval office to a philip randolph there was also the idea because roosevelt was getting hundreds of letters saying whatever you do don't touch race and one was from uh, a guy in Alabama named Bull Connor, mm. Eugene Connor, who later would be the police chief in Birmingham who would put those police dogs and the fire hoses on the civil rights marchers in the 60s. Uh, for a lot of Roosevelt biographers, the, uh, the ultimate issue was that he couldn't lose the Southern bloc of senators and members of the House who would go with him on just about everything, Including new expenditures on the New Deal, actually, but not when it came to race. So, with Roosevelt, you have to look at context. You also have to look personally at how uh, there were things he did that, uh, you know, throughout the year, there was uh, Eleanor tried to nudge him one way or another on uh, this this, uh, person who had been convicted in Virginia of a capital crime uh, with really loose evidence. And he did make a few phone calls to the governor of Virginia, but that's about all he did. But he also wanted Eleanor to give him credit for, hey, at least I made the phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> so with Roosevelt, you know, he, it's hard to give him a final score that that's, that's really up there because of these enormous blind spots. but. It's hard to find anyone in Washington who doesn't have those kinds of blind spots. I mean, you know, who's white, because all you have to do, like I said, if you if, if race isn't a, a marginal issue, that kind of pops up that I have to go find. It was everywhere, and it was so overwhelming. Yeah, it had it. I it, it was just a running thread, but it's a running thread not just through 1942, but throughout American history.
1: And isn't it tragic that? Some in this country still today are trying to sweep that under the rug and hide that and and tell a false narrative about what really went on.
0: Well, there's one, at least on the other hand, I can't control the narrative. You can't control the narrative. The kind of research, I don't have a license to do research. I just kind of gave myself permission, and so can students, and so can anyone else to do research. Some of this is kind of hard. You have to go to some of these libraries. You have to go to D.C. and I went to California. I went to London. But you can also do a great deal with your laptop in ways that uh, you can inform yourself and do your own work.
1: I want to ask you about one other individual that uh, you have the greatest admiration and respect for that uh, contributed in in. Places to your uh, the year of peril, uh, America, nineteen forty-two, and and that's somebody that I think all Americans should know um, about, uh, uh, much more about uh, John Hope Franklin. Oh. Tell me uh, what sort of iconic figure or in, inspiration he's been in your life, and and frankly, should be uh, familiar to to all of us.
0: Well, I I, I wasn't sure who you were going to mention, but you you yeah. John O. Franklin was a historian. Uh, He was one of my, I took his last class. Mm -hmm. And whenever I'm in any group with people who knew Frank, when I say that I get oohs and ahs, or else they must think I'm getting really old. Uh, He wrote From Slavery to Freedom, the first great textbook, if you will, about African-American history. And I, I remembered, I took his last class on reconstruction, but it was it were the conversations outside of class that I remember. And I remember one day talking about World War II and I, I kind of had these cultural blinders in my head about what a wonderful year it was, what time it was. And he said, that's your war, it's not mine. And I wasn't sure what he meant until I read his memoir about all that he tried to do the volunteer. And he had a PhD from Harvard and yet was still rebuffed And after one indignity after another, he had just had enough of being treated like this. And so for him, World War II was very different from the nostalgic ones that, uh, I think people who didn't experience that as well. So that probably helped me kind of see things like Norma Green. And so many others uh, who, who appear in 1942, kind of as a way to say to John Hope, who, who passed away many years ago, I get it now. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, you're absolutely right, Bill. There are a few human beings on this planet I have admired more or feel lucky that I got to be in his orbit for, mm-hmm. for a, um, a few months and uh, it had an enormous impact on me.
1: Well, Tracy Campbell, it's been um, a a really interesting conversation. Uh, The book is The Year of Peril, uh, America, 1942. And it would seem like to me, um, along with your teaching duties, your research, uh, your uh, grant to uh, develop a new course on misinformation at the University of Kentucky. I'm sure you're working on 1943 and 1944 Um, and the conclusion of the war in 1945. And then what happened afterwards? Isn't that, I mean, what else do you have to do?
0: <laughs> uh, I'm just bored. I don't, I, I look for <laughs> things to do, Bill. Um, I'm, I'm not yet ready to say what I'm working on next. I, I'm still thinking about it, but uh, I'm, you know, I, I don't want it to be like the Rocky series, you know, <laughs> 1943, <laughs> this year, it's personal or something. I, I hope, it's something as meaningful, but I'm kind of thinking of a different question. Let me put it that way than 1942. Rather than what do you do in a time of crisis? Maybe what do you do when you're on top? What do you do in a time in which it's 72 degrees every day and you get a check from your long lost aunt? What do you do with that opportunity? And from about 45 to 49, was that moment really the apex of American power? And so hmm. I think it's a—it's helpful to go back and think, what did we do, and what did we squander? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's maybe. What I'm about right now.
1: Well, I, as we close out, I want to uh, give you a shameless plug, uh, and but suggest to everyone uh, that uh, might not have discovered some of your earlier work, um, short of the glory. Uh, and one of those other unique individuals in American uh, history um, and certainly in Kentucky history, um, Ed Pritchard is, is someone that, again, um, I'm not going to even get close to comparing him to anybody else that you've mentioned today, but, but somebody that we uh, as Kentuckians need to know uh, who he is and the Pritchard Committee, of course, named after him uh, that that is still very active and in, involved in many aspects of life and education in Kentucky. But your book on uh, Pritch was uh, was remarkable and and uh, and, and, a, and a really good read. People can still get that, I'm sure. And and order that book. And um, it's it's excellent. So along with this one, maybe go back and pick up another early Tracy Campbell
0: very quick. First of all, I don't see what was shameless about that. Second, <laughs> there were a lot of Kentuckians playing prominent roles in World War II. Yeah, uh, it's, it's it just keeps popping up. Someone from Kentucky, someone from Kentucky.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I noticed uh, I didn't even mention, but I will now. Barclay's name, uh, our okay. our vice president, uh, who I remember my parents uh, uh being uh, my mother was a, a huge uh, uh, Alvin Barkley fan and uh, loved uh, that he was from Kentucky and uh, from the purchase area. So there's another one that if people don't know that name and and his uh, role and service to uh, this country uh, as a Kentuckian, they, they should.
0: If there were, say, two or three senators mentioned over and over again in 42, one would be Alvin Barkley, a Senate majority leader, yeah. who, by the way, in that filibuster fought hard to try and get rid of the poll tax because he thought it was an attack on democracy. Yeah. He lost that battle. Yeah. But Alvin Barkley is someone we, we can't forget. You're right. Yeah.
1: Well, good, good, good for you and good for him. And thanks for joining us on uh, Think
0: Humanities podcast. Thanks for having me, Bill, and take care.
1: Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.